0: Welcome to Opening Dharma Access, a podcast where we hear from BIPOC teachers about their dharma experiences and practice, and how these inform the ways they are sharing the dharma today. I am Karma Yeshe children your host for this episode. Joining me today is Bhante Sanatavihari. Los Angeles Sanatavihari Bhikkhu is a Mexican-American Theravada monk at the Saracandra Buddhist Center in North Hollywood, Los Angeles a sri lankan center he is a student of the late dr bante punaji and the director of casa de bhavana an outreach project to bring the dharma to the spanish speaking world he's also the co-author of buddhism in ten steps he is a us air force veteran has a bachelor's of arts in religion and is a mindfulness researcher at Mount St. Mary University, Los Angeles, as well as a graduate student in Mount St. Mary University, Los Angeles Counseling Psychology Program. Hello, Bantila. How are you?
1: Good, good, good. Thank you. How are you?
0: I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited about this conversation. No worries. We usually just invite our guests to let us know how they would like to share their identity locations, how you identify racially or ethnically or gender, any other categories of social location that are of importance to you right now.
1: Hmm. I think the ones that stand out for me the most are being both culturally Mexican and American.
0: And can you say a little bit about your personal background? Do you have a (laughs) unique story of encountering the Dharma? And I'd love our listeners to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Yeah.
1: Okay. I'll try to keep it short. Uh, I grew up in Koreatown, which is a very diverse neighborhood even to this day. And, uh, you know, I grew up during the racial tensions, you know, between African-Americans and uh, Korean-Americans. Got to see the riots fold out in front of me and my mom, you know, run downstairs and try to save the car's battery because someone had broken into the car, opened the hood and tried to steal the battery. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, just giving some context of kind of like places where I grew up. Also, a lot of gang violence. Many of my siblings were victims of gang violence or perpetrators of gang violence, gang activity. I remember helicopters, gunshots all the time, my mom, you know, kind of like coming running out of wherever she was in the house, grabbing me and my sister and having us lay down on the ground to kind of, you know, protect us uh, from whatever might happen. So within that, I was introduced to all these different cultures, you know, like uh, Korean American culture, Chinese American culture, Japanese American culture, Salvadorian American, Guatemalan American, Mexican American. It was just such a rich place. And it re- really like opened up my mind to like different possibilities. My parents were also kind of very interested in Asian cultures, especially my father. My father being a World War II veteran, he was a bit older and he himself being part of the island hopping campaigns during World War II and in, in the Pacific and him also growing up in Gilroy, California, which was known as the garlic capital of the world. <laughs> and he also said that when he grew up there, there was a lot of Japanese Americans. So there was this kind of like... Um, Asian influence. And also the first daycare or school I ever went to was a Korean American school. I was the only non-Korean there. I didn't know at the time, you know, you're a child. But uh, when I looked back at the pictures, I noticed that someone looks different. And that was me. Uh, <laughs> so I grew up within this environment later, you know, going to middle school, grew up in Hollywood. There's a lot of Thai Americans there, uh, Vietnamese Americans. So there was Buddhism was there. So it was like different forms of Christianity, Judaism, just like a lot of different a lot of different spiritualities, religions going on in that environment. So by the time I got to high school, I just got really interested and I just whatever I could get my hands on, I started reading, like started with the, you know, Greek classics and then going into, you know, kind of like Eastern philosophy, kind of like Confucianism and the Tao. And that brought me to a book. The first Buddhist book that I ever read was called The Joy of Living and Dying in Peace by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And that book just completely like spun my head around. I was like, wow, this is beautiful. And basically that book, he's presenting the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path. And there was just something about it where I got it. And I was like, yes, this makes so much sense. Like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is how I want to live my life. This is how I see the world. But, you know, I was a high school boy. Like, I was too immature to follow through with it. It sounded (laughs) nice, but I still wanted to party and, you know, do all those (laughs) other things and chase girls and all that other (laughs) kind of stuff. So, um, but, you know, um, I ended up, my high school sweetheart was a Vietnamese Buddhist. She also introduced me a little bit to more of the ritual things. I asked her and her family, but they didn't really, couldn't explain. Some of it was like a language barrier, but some of it was just like, they didn't really, you know, have like a different kind of understanding of it. It's just like, you know, we go to the, we do the rituals and they had a beautiful altar in their house. And that was there. A lot of my Thai friends too, in high school could better explain Buddhism too, like kind of what they did. So. Uh, after high school, I actually went to a Thai temple trying to find out more about Buddhism, maybe even like temporary donation. but there was a language barrier and they didn't have any English programs. So I kind of gave up on that, although they gave me another book on the Eightfold Path. So that's like a recurring theme, the Eightfold Path keeps coming into my life over and over and over again.
0: Oh, wonderful.
1: And then I joined the United States Air Force Reserve, just because I've always been a very like, energetic, spontaneous, like passionate, person, you know, and I needed something to like, I needed some order. (laughs) I I knew I couldn't rely on myself coming out of high school. And I saw like what some of my friends were doing. And some of my older friends did. And I was like, I'm going to do that. But I know that's not what I should be doing. Mm. So I went into the Air Force. And when I was there, I got deployed to Iraq, and uh, then Afghanistan twice. So I had three deployments. But I worked on the airfield, you know, like logistics, air transportation. Um, So I wasn't in in too much danger besides the, you know, occasional rocket attacks on the airfield. But yeah, so during that time when I was in the Air Force, maybe about halfway through my career, I also pushed like very hard. I went through all the trainings. I wanted to advance very fast. And then I kind of got to the point where like there was nothing else I could really do. You know, like I could get more promotions, but the jobs, the training, I've reached the highest level basically of competency. And then I started looking for something else. And, you know, I was, I'll be very honest. I was like the typical party guy, you know, like (laughs) typical, whatever you think, stereotypical, military frat guy. I don't know, like Latin lover, whatever your stereotypes are. I had a little bit of all of those in me. (laughs) Uh, So there's no shame in my game. I have to be completely honest. So I was living a good life, you know, like girls, they were there. Beautiful ones, lovely girls too, like very nice, actually, and very smart. Parties all over the world, traveling because of the military. Partying in Japan, partying in Korea, partying in Hawaii, like Vegas, Miami, wherever. Living a good life, and uh, you know, to most of my friends and family members,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when they looked at me, they said like Well, he's he's got it going on, right? Like he's having fun. Like he's that type of guy that you know a lot of guys want to be like." But then, out when I would wake up in the morning, I would feel. Mm. Emptiness? You know, like a lack of something? Like, yeah, this is all good. I appreciate it. Like it's nice. It's it's nice to have a nice girlfriend. It's nice to have a nice car. It's nice to be able to go on trips with my friends from the military and and enjoy them and have all these family events and all th- these things are beautiful. But there was always something that was missing. And then I kinda came to the realization, well, maybe it's not out there in the world. Maybe what I'm looking for is not something out there. Mm. Maybe it's something that comes from the inside. So then I started digging deeper into things. I started going to different like Hindu temples, Buddhist temples, Mm -hmm. all different traditions. Started going back to mass too, because I grew up Catholic. I started going to my friend's uh, Christian congregation too. And so I was just all over the place. I was looking for this kind of connection, but then I kind of already knew somewhere in my mind because I I was still reading Buddhist books. Like this was kind of like what I liked the most, Mm -hmm. but it took some time for that, to kick in experientially, because I knew it cognitively, but I needed an experience. And then after my third deployment uh, in Afghanistan, I came back and I went on this meditation retreat and I got that experience where I could verify for myself experientially. And I said, OK, this is what I want to do. So then two or three months after that, because I had a va- like a vacation in Spain with my friends from the military plan. So we went on vacation. We partied even after that very religious you know, <laughs> experience. <laughs> And I kept talking about it and they're like, yeah, 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 let's go, let's go. So, but whatever, you know, then I just asked for ordination at this temple that I'm at in North Hollywood, a Sri Lankan Theravada Buddhist temple called Sarath Chandra Buddhist Center. And and I had already been coming here for some time, like two years before, but just showing up for like the meditations, kind of like the Western programs, not being really involved with the community, but then started seeking ordination. I started coming to every event and a lot of them were in Sinhala. I didn't understand anything. I would just sit there and just kind of like, connect with the vibe of it you know like with the spirit of it there's just something about the feeling of being there and everyone together and practicing together so that was enough for me even though I didn't understand singhala but the monks kind of like you know I guess they kind (laughs) of thought I was joking when I wanted to be a monk so it kind of took like a year for me for them to kind of take me seriously and then invite me to come and stay so then I got I got my lower ordination in 2015 and then my higher ordination in Sri Lanka in 2018 and then from then from that time till now, I've been here at Sarut Chandra Buddha Center in North Hollywood. That's, I've tried to make it very short. So sorry, and I still kind of, it was still long.
0: <laughs> no, that's wonderful. It, it gives us a lot of the richness of the story. You had pretty intense upbringing. I, I couldn't help but see some parallels with the way you described the neighborhood and your childhood. It sounded like an urban war zone Yeah, with the helicopters and all this. Mm-hmm. Do you see any parallels between your military training and the training in dharma that you've been through as a monastic?
1: Well, the short hair is an obvious one, right? The uniform. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone wears uniform, clean shaven. We all eat at a certain time, right? There's like rules, regulations. There's kind of like you respect seniority. So there's a lot of parallels. Like it was such a, I think that's what really, really made my transition so easy. Like it facilitated this whole process. I just, it was just easy. Like I I didn't find anything hard about becoming a monk. It was just like doing the same thing that I was doing in the military, but Mm. in a non-dangerous environment and not getting paid.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering, you talked about going to so many different spiritual centers, be they Buddhist or not Buddhist. Did you experience as a BIPOC seeker Things that were supportive or not supportive in the various places that you encountered and in particularly when you did start practicing and training in your tradition, were there things that were supportive or not as a BIPOC Mm -hmm. practitioner?
1: So, you know, when I started looking for centers, the first thing that came to mind was like, if I wasn't Mexican and I wanted to learn about charreria, like, you know, like riding horses and rodeos and stuff, Mexican, like rodeo arts, Then I would go to like a Mexican place where Mexican people teach that, you know, when I wanted to learn about Buddhism, I said, well, I'm going to go to like the Asian centers, you know, where the the people who've been doing this for a long time. So my experience, like 90% of it of going to these different places, wherever I went, even like the Christian and Catholic ones were all like people of color, BIPOC people. Like that's all I went to. I can only think of like two places. They're both Zen places where it was a majority like white Sangha. But outside of those places, it was always like Vietnamese, Thai, Sri Lankan, Burmese, like, that just made sense to me. Like, I'm just going to go, you know, where the culture that brought this beautiful tradition uh, to us. So I guess that really made everything easier, too. Because I never felt other I always just felt like it was very easy to connect with that same immigrant experience. So I don't know, I was very lucky. Like, I just felt like, I can't even think of any examples of anything worth mentioning (laughs) because it just seemed like it all worked out for me somehow, everywhere I went.
0: Looking back, do you see any differences? It sounds like the Asian context was very supportive for you. But do you see differences in those spaces that you gravitated towards and more white dominated spaces that you visited and chose not to pursue?
1: Yeah, I think culture. I love the cultural dimension. I like the, the that kind of dynamic, like a, like an extended family dynamic in the place. You know, I like bright colors. I like noisiness, crowdedness, you know, <laughs> like in people just doing what they got to do without asking for permission. Like I love that. So like in, especially in the Sri Lankan culture, it's just like that. Like we don't have planned out, like who's going to do what, like you just see something that needs to be done. You do it. People bring in the food. You don't ask who's going to bring it. Like, People just, there's no assigned seating. Everyone just gets in. Everyone's like, you know, really tight. Also in the Thai temples too, you know, beautiful music and dances they have with the ceremonies and things like that. So the Western centers, you know, the more American centers kind of like that. It just seemed like very sterilized, you know, like, like it was like a professional setting, you know, like professional Buddhism or something like that. And that does have some sort of benefit, you know, like I, I, Mm -hmm. I can't see how that would, would help some people who probably are just kind of like, don't want all that other extra stuff and very particular about what they want. You know, I just want this and that's it. Like, you know, compartmentalizing things and just I just want this little piece and that's all I want. But I didn't like that. You know, I wanted to feel at home, like I'm with my familia and like, I like that feeling. So I was looking for places that kind of supported that and the Asian centers, I love that cultural dynamic where everyone comes in and brings food and talks. And even though they're like gossiping and you're not supposed to because you're a Buddhist, but that whole (laughs) thing, you know, like- The cheese may is like part of it. I like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that cheese may and all the. That social network, really, it sounds like that was Mm -hmm. extremely supportive for you to have something where you didn't have to put your own cultural background aside. So it seems like you really found a lot of resonances in the Asian-American centers, even though culturally they weren't identical to your background growing up. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little more about what you found supportive beyond those social dimensions?
1: I think just kind of like that openness to share even though there's like language barriers, willing to to like work it out and kind of like feeling like we're on a parallel level. Mm -hmm. There wasn't like, oh, I'm the authority here or, you know, something like that. That very useful. I think also like how the lay people were also very welcoming. I found like Mm
0: -hmm.
1: probably more than the monks because the monks have like their limits, you know, because of the rules, the monks rules. But the lay people were so welcoming. They would come up to me and like, oh, what are you doing here? What's going on? Can I help you? Can I feed you? And all these other things. So I think just how how willing people were to approach me when I was just sitting in the corner, you know, Mm. and kind of like being quiet. So I think that was something that really brought me in and made me feel at home.
0: Do you think that that gives you a sense of what you might suggest to other communities, be they Asian centered or uh, convert Buddhist communities who want to be more supportive of BIPOC practitioners?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I like this family feel, you know, and if you can bring that kind of family dynamic, that social dynamic, extended family dynamic to it, where, you know, like everyone's your uncle and everyone's your niece. And if you can treat everyone that comes in like that, you know, make them feel embraced like they're part of the family. I think that would really help instead of having this whole like professional Buddhist kind of culture, corporate Buddhist culture. I don't, you know, I feel so weird. Like that's one of the reasons why I kind of had to step away from the military of that kind of culture. But uh, I think if we can just treat each other more like family instead of like someone other or someone from the outside coming in or someone even converting, don't even think about like convert or mm. trying to change people. It's just like a family member who you haven't seen in a while.
0: That's great. Now they're here. I know that you've done a lot of work, especially more recently with making the Dharma available directly in Spanish. Can you speak about language and how that would impact you as a new BIPOC person now or why you found that it was valuable to offer the teachings in Spanish translation?
1: Yeah, I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier about like, if I weren't Mexican and I wanted to learn something about Mexico, then I would go to a Mexican person. So then if you would want to learn the Dhamma, then I think it'd be very useful to not have a middle step in between or some extra barrier, like English. You know, you can go straight into the Tibetan, straight into the Chinese, straight into the Japanese, straight into the Sanskrit, straight into the Pali, whatever it is, you know. So it just didn't make sense to me to translate English into Spanish, or even have English there in the middle for our our local Latino sangha, we can just completely get rid of it, bypass it and go straight to the source. So there's where I kind of really started, like that's where my work started, I wanted to offer it free from any kind of like, English language perspectives or biases or interpretations and Mm. just come at it from there and see what happens.
0: Do you see a difference in those dimensions, the biases and perspectives and assumptions that people may have coming from an English speaking culture as opposed to, in your case, a Spanish speaking culture?
1: Yeah, I I think there's this, again, this more kind of like professional vibe or scientific vibe or hyper-rational vibe, you know, like that's there. And and like Buddhism is one thing. And then like politics is another thing. And then medicine is another thing. And, you know, education is another thing. And in other cultures, it's not like that. Like there's no lines in between these things. They all like mix around, you know, it's like a, like a caldo. Everything's just <laughs> in there in, that, in the soup, in the broth. You know, I kind of wanted to translate the Pali into, you know, like the Latino culture which is just kind of like beautiful salsa where everything's thrown in, all the peppers, all the chiles, tomatoes and everything (laughs) and presented like that because that's how they understand it. You know, if I try presenting it sometimes in the kind of more Western type and people are just like, why does it have to be so technical, right? Like, why does it have to be like that? Or where are all the other parts? Like, how does it apply to regular life? Mm -hmm. You know, it seemed like Buddhism was something else that you do only in the temple, on the cushion when you present it in the more typical, like Western style, like you go on retreats and that's when you do Buddhism. Mm Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be like, no, like when your auntie comes and she starts like starting drama, you know, <laughs> and the quinceanera, that's when you need to use the dama. It's not something that you do somewhere else or in your own house. It's not private. I think that's the difference. Mm-hmm. You know, like I feel like religion in North America and like Anglo-Saxon places is something private. And in Latin America, religion is like outside. It's not private. It's expressed in everything that you do.
0: Can you talk about, how people received it differently when they started hearing it directly in Spanish, not only through the language, but through the, like you're saying, through the salsa that you're bringing to the experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, people were giving me this feedback. So then I just decided to just like talk like I'm talking to you. I'll introduce the Dhamma that way. And that's when people started coming up to me after the retreats and sharing really deep, intimate thoughts or or the impact of the retreat I remember I had this one senora and my mom stayed at Zacatecas after the retreat this old lady you know like typical Mexican old lady like if you watch the movie uh, Coco you know like that, yeah. <laughs> that kind of like typical stereotypical she came up to me and I was like why is she gonna come up to me you know she was Catholic most of the people there I think 80% of the people there, were Catholic on this meditation retreat although it was advertised as a Buddhist retreat and she came up to me and she just started crying mm-hmm. crying 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 And I didn't know what to say. I just waited. And she's like, thank you so much. And I was like, you know, it's nada. like I haven't done anything. I don't know what you're thinking for." And she's like, I've had problems walking and every week I trip and I fall and I hurt myself. But you taught us walking meditation. You just gave us simple instructions how to walk. Now I notice what I'm doing when I'm walking and I'm not paying attention and how I trip. She's like, thank you so much. Now, you know, I will avoid falling more. And she said more things, too, you know, but I just kind of wanted to share that. And that wasn't me sharing some technical part of Buddhism, how to properly do walking meditation and how to have sati and sampajanya. And, you know, it wasn't like a tech, it was just like, okay, we walk with attention, fluidly paying attention, forget all these other things. You're just here, you're in a safe space. And, you know, it, w- it was just conversational teaching. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a technical teaching. And those conversational ones, I feel like, have a deeper impact than this kind of like very, very technical thing. It's just kind of like, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of turns like into an ego kind of thing, you know, when it gets very technical sometimes and like people use it to kind of make themselves seem like they know a lot about something. And that doesn't really come off well. And and especially when I go to Latin America, I don't go to like affluent places. (laughs) I go to the pueblos, you know, I'm in the little towns. I I go to work with indigenous communities. Like I'm just with whoever I call it, you know, like Basically, the Seven Eleven version of Buddhism. I told them they have this thing in Mexico called OXO, OXO, and it's like the Seven Eleven. So I say, like you know, Buddhismo de OXO, like it's just like you know, Seven Eleven Buddhism. Like anyone can walk in and take it. So that's who I work with. So I, that's the way I teach. But I, I, I would see if I would go to different spaces in Mexico how the technical side of it would would be more beneficial.
0: I'm seeing resonance in what you're talking about with my experience. I find that if I want to reach Hispano hablante cultures or people who are either multi-generational Hispanic here in New Mexico or new immigrants, or I'm actually from the New York City area and there's a big mix of Latinx Americans there. Mm -hmm. It's really something more where I go to them and I bring the language and and our common ground I'm hearing that same kind of thing to you. Is that something that you at some point discovered or did you just happen into that? How did that occur?
1: So it's something that that I discovered, like within the first two years that I was a monk, I noticed that we always stayed in the temple. And when we went out, we always went in a car. And then I would meet people and they'll be like, oh, I didn't know there was a Buddhist temple there. And we've been here for over 20 years, you know? How did they know? Well, we're not out. They never see us. Mm -hmm. Like we're always indoor because we have the AC, you know, (laughs) and the heater in here. And when we go out, like people are taking us places. We're in a car. So then I said, you know what? I need to go out there. Like the people need us. I need to interact. I need to go where the people are at. So I decided to do like, just walk around for exercise, like after my meal or go on alms round too. I would go on alms round on the weekends. Mm -hmm. I'd ride the train, ride the bus. Even when I had nothing to do, I'll just like, I'll take a trip on the bus, I'll go on the train and meeting people where they're at. You know, sometimes we talk about meeting people where they're at, like intellectually or emotionally, but like literally meeting people where they're at, like in the space, in the physical place. Mm-hmm. So, with a lot of even like the devotees here, they'll invite me to like a local cafe or like to eat tacos or to go to a pizza place or even like go to McDonald's or something like that. In mm-hmm. those places, very remarkable things happen like people out of nowhere will come up to you and they're like are you a real buddhist monk (laughs) you know what is buddhism and they're like but you're a mexican monk like what's up with that you know (laughs) i even had someone come up to me once and whisper this vietnamese lady she's like are you a mexican buddhist monk you know like it was like (laughs) (laughs) she wasn't sure what's going on like if it was a secret or i don't know i was like yeah of course yeah i'm a mexican buddhist monk i think stepping out of the traditional spaces that Buddhism is kind of in and going into the places where everyone else is at, you know? And I think that's the best way Mm. to kind of introduce Buddhism in the mundane everyday life, because people want something that works for them. You know, when someone cuts them off in traffic or when their neighbor moves the trash can (laughs) or things like that, right? Like in the everyday life, not running away. And Buddhism is often accused of like, you know, running away from the world and Buddhist monks, you became a monk to run away from the world. I'm like, no, no, I want to show you that, you know, the Dharma is in everyday life and everything that we do. And one way to show that is to actually go out there into the world and be there with the people wherever they're at.
0: So what I'm hearing from you is that centers that are trying to appeal to BIPOC seekers to come to their center or maybe thinking of it upside down. They should be re- going mm-hmm. out of their centers and going to find the folks where they are. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And you know, and, and wear your robes, wear the things that you wear in the temple, like do all of that. Because that's going to attract the, the people to they have curiosity. Just like yesterday, I was a, I was coming out of the metro station. There was this young African-American man smoking a cigarette. And he's like, I can see he wants to talk to me, but he's all shy. And he's kind of like not sure what to do. So then he hides his cigarette behind him. I guess he felt a little shy. <laughs> he hides his cigarette and he comes up to me and he's like, what is metaphysical? Mm. You know, <laughs> so then we, we talked for a little bit. And then he's like, well, I just want to know how to communicate these kind of like spiritual matters to people because it seems like people are not open to talk about it. And I was like, well, just entice their curiosity, you know, just like make them curious about things. We don't need to preach. We don't need to educate, just make things interesting, you know? Mm. And he, he was, he was happy. He had a big smile. He said, thank you. But that kind of interaction would never happen here in the temple. You know, like it would never happen. Like me going to a formal Buddhist event, doing chanting at someone's house. Like we need to go out there and give people the opportunity to approach us and maybe, you know, most of the time it's people that I would never have expected to reach out to me. A lot of people who have even been drinking people who pretty sure they're on drugs, you know, or, uh, uh other people I have gang members come up to me and start crying mm-hmm. and confess to me, you know, so many things that they've done out of nowhere. So if, if we go out there, I think that's, that's the best way we gotta be, we gotta be people at the end of the day. So when you show them that we're just people just like them, I think that works the best instead of like yeah, Holy Mystical Retreat Center or Mystical Monk and stuff like that.
0: Something that puts us at a remove and makes them have to get over hurdles.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I'm curious, you talked a lot about how the Asian American spaces actually felt welcoming and supportive for you. Were there any challenges that you found Uh, in those spaces as you trained towards being a monk and a teacher?
1: Definitely. Yeah. We only heard the good parts right now, but now it's time for the bad parts or the difficult parts, right? The struggles. Yeah. So like building cultural competency, things that we take for granted, like even how to hand something to someone, eye contact, all these other things. You have to like learn a new language, a new social language, behavioral language. And, you know, you always have that Feeling inside of you, even though you can rationalize it away, you have that feeling inside of you. Well, like this is just the way things are. This is the way I do things, right? But then you start realizing, no, like there's many ways to do this, right? And the way they're doing it is just the way they grew up, and the way I do is the way I grew up. So, but I'm here with them now, so I need to, you know, kind of like blend into it or you know, um, adapt to the current situation. So there were some of those struggles, and even with some like very silly ones, like in Sinhala, the Sri Lankan language. The way you say son is puta. And in Spanish, that is a very bad word, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> So constantly hearing that word for the first year would trigger me, right? <gasps> Who said that? Who said that? Who said that? Right? <laughs> and then learning not to be reactive to that in like reinterpreting that word and placing it in a different context in a larger context where it, my understanding of it is just not this initial reaction of a virgin or a bad word. So that was something. Obviously, other smaller things like the super spicy food, like that was difficult for a long time. I had stomach problems for like the first six months. It was so hard for me. Although like I'm Mexican, but I don't eat that kind of spicy level. I was never like those Mexicans who eat really spicy. Yeah, it's really different. What else? Oh, You know, there's, there's always that feeling of feeling different, but it was always on my side. I never felt like it was on the other side, like, you know, coming at me like you're different. But you do feel that. And you do feel, especially as a monastic, you feel alone when you're surrounded by no one who's like you. No one here is young. There's no young monks. There's no Mm. monks who grew up in a Western culture. There's no monks who are Latinos or who even speak Spanish, you know, so there's all these things. And most of those things were from me, I didn't really ever feel like coming from the outside. But those were all barriers or obstacles that I had to overcome. And basically, I just had to learn to get over myself. That was at the end of the day, my biggest impediment was the things that I took for granted, and kind of having having to get over those things.
0: To what extent does that experience influence how you would teach BIPOC students or practitioners who are seeking to become monastics themselves?
1: Mm. You know, I believe in being like very sincere and keeping it real. So just sharing like this kind of experience, letting them know like, hey, you know, like this, this will happen, or this might be what's happening with you right now, you know, kind of like normalizing it. I think is 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 a big part of it. Just acknowledging that it's there is a big part of it. But also, I think once again, just keeping it at a very normal, everyday kind of level. I think that way there's more freedom for the person to kind of take it or practice it in a way which they feel most comfortable with. Instead of like, no, this is the only way that we sit, or this is the only way that we chant, or you know, like. Whatever this is the way you have to do things, and kind of just leaving that space open for the person to kind of be like, well, I want to kind of adapt it. And just last week we had a, you know, here at the Sri Lankan temple we had a piñata. There's never been a piñata here, you know, and it was during a Buddhist, a Buddhist chanting festival, you know, like very formal ceremony. And and I told the abbot here, I was like, hey, you know, the Latinos are organizing this weekend's event, and they wanted to know if they can bring a piñata because the kids would be good, the candy would be good for the kids, they would like it. And he was like, okay. (laughs) like nothing he didn't even have to think about it so then we brought the piñata we had it the kids love all the candy the parents weren't so happy about so much candy that we gave the kids (laughs) but uh so just kind of leaving the space open leaving the teachings open leaving the form open yes it's important you know there's times for like being very technical and being strict with form but I think in general it's better just to kind of leave some space leave it more open and because when we talk about BIPOC I mean we're all different BIPOC's like So many different people are in this category, so many different cultures and different ways of seeing the world. So I don't think there's no way that we can lump these people into one way and say, well, this will work for these people. No, because even between like like if a Mexican person comes here and a Guatemalan person comes here, it's going to be different. The Mexican experience and the Guatemalan experience is different. So I think just leaving it open creates the opportunity for that person to be able to kind of see where they fit in and then kind of use whatever feels comfortable for them in the beginning.
0: Yeah, I noticed when you were talking about your background that you were talking about various Latinx American groups, the Mexican American community, Salvadorian American community, and that's something that may be lost on folks who aren't within that community, how much diversity there is even within the Latinx American community, not to mention other countries that are Spanish speaking.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, even within Mexico, there's so much diversity, you know? Like I'm from the Norte, like Zacatecas and Monterrey and all that part. Of me- That's a different culture than Central Mexico and Southern Mexico and even Baja. Like no, Southern Baja and Northern Baja are different cultures. So like there's things that won't exactly translate into it. So sometimes we think like, oh, Mexican, there's a certain cultural thing. But, you know, in my family, we never practiced Dia de los Muertos because they were very Catholic. And that was seen as kind of like a pagan practice, mm. you know, but for other people, they grew up with Dia de los Muertos. It was a normal thing. Uh, so. You know, even within these kind of identities, there's like all these other identities within it. And we just kind of need, need to be aware of that and not take anything for granted.
0: So as a translator myself, I'm really curious about your experience translating the teachings into Spanish. Mm-hmm. What do you do with making the language accessible for people and having people, as you say, have a more experiential connection with the teachings than a cognitive one?
1: I think Spanish is is more of a more passionate language, you know, as like as very passionate. So so I try to capitalize on that aspect of it, you know, so I, I, I do find myself instead of using like a word that would that would technically be very close, you know, I try to find a word That catches the spirit of it more Mm. and that the person can connect to easier. So that's one thing. Sometimes, like if you're talking about like the, you know, the skandhas, there's no way around it. It's gonna be a very technical word that you're gonna use. (laughs) But (laughs) like when I translated the Karaniya Meta Sutta, the loving kindness sutta, I wanted people to be able to connect to it, you know? And it still kind of be very be accurate to the translation. And that's actually the first sutta that I worked on to translate. I wanted to keep that poetic side to it. I wanted yeah, that like metta side, that connection, mm-hmm. that, you know, caring and compassion and loving to it, but also be truthful to it. And it's difficult because, you know, there's a part in the metta sutta where the people will, will use heart to translate this. But but I looked at the Pali and even it doesn't say heart there. It, it doesn't even say like mind or anything like that either. Because sometimes, you know, in Buddhism, mind and heart, it's kind of like similar yeah. or kind of they're in, intertwined. But it doesn't even say that word, but I saw people translating it both in English and in Spanish into heart. And I get what they're trying to do, right? Like it's trying to not translate the word, but like the me- the meaning behind it. I just said, may they be happy-minded. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of like saying I think usually they say something about like heart or loving or something like that. So there's there was that struggle of like trying to be technical and also Trying to get the meaning, but then also trying to place that within in, in a place where people would understand it at their level, you know, like within the Spanish culture. So there's like all these, we can use metaphors, we can use similes, we can we can use all this kind of like poetic tools to translate the meaning behind it. But the technical part may be loose. And if we're technical, the meaning may be loose. And even if we mm-hmm. find a good word that is in the middle, this current time that we're living in in this culture. that word doesn't work, Mm. you know? So I think something about translation work is that Spanish and English are living languages. You know, they're still being spoken. They're changing. So we probably have to retranslate all the suttas every hundred years because the language is changing. Mm. So that's one of the things I realize when I'm translating, I have to translate for, it's very difficult for the way Spanish is being spoken right now. Mm -hmm. And to the audience that I'm usually talking to, which is like the general public. So those are kind of like how I try to work with the, with the translations, but mostly I try to focus on the culture right now. Mm. How would the culture right now understand it? And that's basically how I work with translations. That
0: sounds great. I know that you were involved in the May We Gather ceremony for the Asian American ancestors. Can you speak a little bit about your involvement with that and why that's important to you?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, When I got the call, I thought they called the wrong person. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, why are they calling me? This is an Asian American, you know, kind of event. Like, what am I doing here? And then I didn't really ask. I was just very humbled and I felt privileged and it was an honor to be part of it just because the Asian community, not only through Buddhism, but way before that has been, has always supported me since I started going to that, you know, daycare center, all my friends, all the nice, like I had a there was a Chinese restaurant near my house when I was a little kid and the owner there, he used to be like my uncle. You know, I felt like he was my uncle and he treated me very nice. So I kind of had this long feeling of like, not feeling indebted, but like, <laughs> you know, there's something I need to contribute to the to the Asian American experience. So I felt like this was a great uh, opportunity to do that. And then I remember like talking to one of my friends, I was like, man, I don't know, like, why am I there? And then they're like, well, they said, Bonte, you know, LA is full of Latinos and the United States is full of Latinos and they need to get that message over to the Latinos, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, you're right. Yeah, I'm I'm there to kind of like spread the message into the Latino community, right? Because it's not something that well, what was happening to Asian Americans and is still happening right now to them uh, is not limited to them, right? And there are neighbors, and they might be our our husbands, our girlfriends, our brothers, our sisters, and there's this disconnect sometimes. You know how uh, immigrant communities sometimes like create their own isolated communities, and mm-hmm. that's kind of part of the problem, which leads to them being Taking advantage of more or being abused more, mm. but if we would all come together, we'd be stronger and we'd be able to resist and even stop a lot of these kind of attacks on us or subversions of us. You know, I didn't really really know what to say when when I was there, uh, so I kind of just like shared a, a sutta uh, because they get I was supposed to talk about patience and the and the power of patience and uh, the Buddhist view on patience is a very extreme one, <laughs> a very <laughs> extreme patience, and then trying to talk about that level of patience you know when your uncle got punched in the face and he his head hit the ground and now he's dead and telling that person oh you know be patient you know practice acceptance and equanimity is like wow you know like it seems a bit out of touch like it's not the right time f- to talk about patience then mm-hmm. so i found it difficult to be to, especially cuz it's not my community you know like maybe if i was talking to only to latinos and we were the ones that were being attacked to that degree and i was talking about our struggles I would feel a little bit more comfortable, but I did feel kind of like there was that kind of tension of like telling people to practice patience when they're being attacked. You know, it's kind of, it's a difficult thing to communicate, but I try to do the best that I could do at at that situation. And I just feel so grateful that I was able to contribute something. And I hope to keep doing more for the Asian American community. I, I, you know, I don't feel like I've done enough for everything, all the friendships. So many of my friends, you know, Asian-Americans who have helped me out in difficult times also throughout my life. And I hope I get more opportunities to do things like that.
0: I wonder if you have something you would say directly to a a new person just discovering the Dharma who's a BIPOC practitioner and is struggling to find a home that feels welcoming in any of the centers. Mm. How, How would you advise them?
1: That's difficult. Um, I think in the beginning, I mean, I'm going to be very honest, in the beginning, aesthetics matter. You know, like what's appealing, like what looks nice, what sounds nice. So just go to those places that you find appealing in the beginning. It's a very shallow answer. Just go there. <laughs> That's going to get you in the door. Then after that, you might notice that you want, you want something else from it or you want more from it. And feel free to go to many centers and feel free to even change teachers in the beginning. You know, sometimes... We have this kind of like guilt of like, oh, I need to be faithful to them because they were the first. No, no. Like we're just starting out, you know, and it's all Buddha Dhamma. So let's not get all sectarian about this. We're not in competition against each other. So just kind of have this kind of curiosity to visit different traditions, go with whatever feels right in the beginning. And then you'll start noticing all these things that you like more. And I don't know, at least for me, it was easier to go to like, asian temples than to go to like a western center or a western temple i just i wanted that culture cultural experience to come with it maybe that's not what you want try to see like what you're really looking for are you looking for like a very individualized practice where it's something that you do in private or are you looking for a practice that's more communal right and very expressive you know Or like you wear it on you all the time, literally. And, you know, like you decorate your house that way. So and everything you do is your language is influenced by it. So just kind of know these things. Do a little self-reflection and see what you want. And don't feel bad if you move around, like, you know, to many centers and you change many teachers in the beginning. Just keep it real. Be honest. Don't feel bad about anything. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel shameful about anything. And go where you feel comfortable. Don't feel bad about leaving a center, even if you've been going there for a year. You know, even if you've taken vows or whatever you've done, don't feel bad for leaving. If it's not for you anymore, it's not for you. You just go to another place, you know. So let's get rid of all this like shame and guilt or tripping ourselves out on things. Like just put all of that aside. Be completely authentic. Be sincere. Be comfortable. Be open. Keep it real all the time with yourself and follow your intuition. I think that's the most important thing.
0: That's lovely. Thank you so much, Pantela. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. This has been Karma Yeshe Chirgin for Opening Dharma Access with Bhante Sanatavihari, sharing their dharma experience as a BIPOC teacher. Reverend Leanne Shutt and Cairo Jewelinga will be sharing their discussions with more teachers in the coming months. Look for new episodes on the first Tuesday of every month. In between episodes, we'll also share a meditation, mindfulness practice, chant, or another form of practice from our guests with you. Come back to check that out and to keep on listening to our BIPOC teachers. Be sure to subscribe for notifications and rate and review the podcast to help us spread the word. Check the episode notes for resources and email us at suddenleap.a, the number 2z at gmail.com with any questions. Let's open Dharma access to all beings.